Hello there, and welcome back to Beats by Social Work. I'm Kristen. And I'm Tiffany, your host for the show. We're so glad you came back. And for those who are tuning in for the first time, check out episode one to learn more about who we are. But a brief summary, we are both certified clinical transplant social workers who specialize in all things heart transplant and LVAD, also known as left ventricular assist device. Our goal is to talk all the things transplant and LVAD from the social work perspective and to bring the human element back into the world of transplant for our fellow social workers and our patients, as well as professionals who may stumble in. As a reminder, we are social workers, but we are not your social worker. So we hope topics discussed here will lead you to further discussions within your own transplant team. We always say that we got into transplant in one way or another, and usually there is a personal story associated with it. Well, we as your hosts are no different. Today, we're going to switch things up a little bit. We have Alex, neuro-oncology social work navigator, previously transplant social worker. Alex is a wife and mother of two adorable little boys. And today, I, Kristen, am going to chat with Tiffany and Alex as they share their personal story with transplant and organ donation. Not only about the two of you, but also a story about both of your mothers and their journey as well. This is a very unique story that I am truly honored to share with our listeners and help facilitate this conversation. But I do keep in mind that this is your story, Tiffany and Alex. So thank you for sharing it with us. Tiffany and Alex are going to share their stories back and forth. So we do apologize in in advance for any whiplash that you may experience. Also, it's fair to give a trigger warning. This episode is raw. It is authentic and talks about loss and it talks about grief. If you are not in a place to hear that, we understand, give you a moment and grace to turn the episode off and pick it back up when you're ready. So buckle up. Here we go. And as always, we start with a quote. If nothing else, one day you can look someone straight in the eyes and say, but I lived through it and it made me who I am today. Anonymous. So Tiffany... If we may start with you, can you tell me a little bit about your story and your mom and the big event that happened in your life and the life of your family? Yeah, so my mom was awesome. My mom was one of those moms. She was the the mom's mom. Um, She was real. She was PTO president, all of those things. We had a pretty unique relationship in the way that she was one of my best friends. She and I would always talk before bed each night and talk about our days and just all that was going on in life. And she made me feel safe. She made me feel loved. And, you know, during those talks at night, we would always say, you know, what were the the good parts or the bad parts? Let them go. And then she would kiss me goodnight and um, go to bed. And so I'd say that there was probably never a time that I actually talked to her and said that I hated her or anything like that, which is kind of unique, especially because I was 15. (laughs) And uh, we were just, that's not heard of because that 15-year-old angst, right? But the night of January 8th was really no different. My family was all together at our house, uh, hanging out, playing games. My brother was home from college. He ended up staying a little bit later. My sister and her new husband were over and we were just all hanging out at a family. And then the night ended until about 1230 uh, in the morning when my dad rushed into my room and told me, your mom's having a heart attack, call your sister. And then ran out of my room. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. So I called my sister and I was like, mom's having a heart attack. Come now. And then like any other 15-year-old girl, I got dressed for the day because, you know, I couldn't stay in my pajamas. Um, I ran down down to her room to see what I could do. But 
honestly, there's nothing you can do in that situation. So I ran outside, opened the doors as wide as I could, and just kind of waited for the the ambulance to come. And and after what seemed to take forever, it finally arrived. And at that point, they were like, "Oh, you know, she's fine. Everything's going. It's going to be all right. You know, we think that it's." It's probably something minor. <laughs> Little did we know. Uh, so they got her all loaded up in the ambulance. But I kid you not, it felt like the longest ambulance ride. I was in the car behind. <laughs> and so we get in, we go through the emergency room. They get her in a room. We're trying to get a hold of my brother because he had gone back to school. We couldn't get in touch with him. And this was back in 2000, mind you. So there wasn't really, there was pagers. We were paging him and we were calling his, his apartment phone, but it wasn't really, cell phones weren't hugely uh, recognized. They were, they were there, but we were just trying to figure out where he was. Finally, we got him there and around the same time, they're like, we have her stable. So you guys can go back and see her. So I went back there and saw her and she uh, actually started to open her eyes and turns out she wasn't opening her eyes. It was a grand mal seizure. So that was fun. I got to witness that. And then as her eyes were rolling in the back of her head, they uh, whisked me out of the room. And then again, finally got her stable, brought her up to the ICU. And by that point, um, my mom was, again, very well loved. And a lot of people started trickling in. So we kind of took over the ICU waiting room. And now I look back on that being in healthcare and I'm like, Ooh, that was like poor, <laughs> poor on our part because people were bringing in food, people were bringing in, you know, drinks. And it's like, this is not a party in the ICU, but um, I felt like I had to host because I didn't know what to do. Um, so I'm just kind of, Oh, hi, how are you? Got brought into a couple of conversations, but didn't really know what was going on. Uh, again, I was 15 first experience with really hospitalization, illness, things like that. And and, and then finally around 12.30, they called us into a family meeting. Now, you know family meetings are never good. And so they gathered us into this conference room and um, the doctor was sitting across from us and then some other woman that I hadn't seen yet at the course. And they said that she was brain dead. And uh, in my 15-year-old mind, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but I'm like, okay, and what's next? I didn't know that brain dead meant she wasn't coming back from this. And so um, it took a while to try to explain that to me, which is unfortunate. But once we finally understood that, that uh, she wasn't coming back from this, that woman started talking. And it turns out she was actually from Gift of Life in Illinois, Organ Procurement Organization, and said, would you want to donate her organs? And, um, you know, we had never had that conversation. And so what af after probably too long of a discussion, we thought about her and who she was. And so we said, of course, like, because she was such a giving woman that even when she had nothing left to give, she had everything to give. And so we said yes. And back at that time, there wasn't honor walks, there wasn't memorial walks, anything like that. So we signed the paperwork and just left and tried to figure out what do we do now? Uh, they said, okay, we'll call you when, when it's done pretty much. So we walked out of the hospital and the next, uh, next phase of life, what comes, what, what are we, who are we? Um, because she truly was the, the glue that held our family together. And, um, you know, during that time, it's kind of funny. I was thinking about this the other day. Again, I was 15 years old and think back to when you were 15 and how much you knew about life or didn't know about life. I was in driver's ed at that time. And in Illinois, in driver's ed, you had to get a certain amount of hours to stay in the program and to get your license and stuff. I blame that on why I'm not the greatest of drivers now, but I still had to get my hours. So they were trying to make me drive to and from the, the store to pick up things that we needed to the funeral home, things like that, until they realized like, mm, 
probably not a good idea to have her driving at this time, but it was, it was one of those moments that was very unexpected because she, she was fine um, up until that point. What ended up happening is she had a massive brain aneurysm rupture. And so that, uh, that unfortunately led to something that we couldn't come out of. And now we're left with what comes next in life, as well as all the hospital bills. Because another fun fact, my family did not have insurance. And so not just, uh, none of us in the family had insurance. And in Illinois, when someone dies, it doesn't mean that the bills go away. So we were left with the ambulance bill, which was several thousand dollars. And we were left with the emergency room bill, the ICU bill. I mean, all the bills for the the care that they were providing to her. And now we had to figure out also, how are we going to pay that? So a lot, uh, a lot happened all in one day and a lot of things that, um, had to be figured out. And uh, as a family, just figured out our world just got turned upside down. And again, that question, now what? Yeah. And left you hanging with this question of now what? What does life look like for us and as a family and as a teenage girl? And before we continue, I want to say that I am so sorry for your loss. And I am so sorry that you had to experience that at any point in your life but much less as a 15-year-old girl. Now, Alex, simultaneously, there was a lot going on in your life, uh, it sounds like. So can you tell me a little bit about your mom and what shift happened in your family? Sure. So like Tiffany, my mom and I were super close. When I was a kid, she was my best, best, best friend, my rock, my everything, and all of my memories. I have all fun, amazing memories of us doing all kinds of after school and weekend adventures, lots of arts and crafts. She was an art teacher. We did a lot of baking and cupcake decorating and just a lot of creativity going on. And my mom was pretty healthy, aside from having asthma all her life. So we often saw her with her inhalers and her breathing treatments, and that was just pretty normal for us. It wasn't a big deal. But when I turned 15, um, things changed for us. And my mom started having a lot of difficulty with her breathing, and she was really fatigued. And for a long time, we didn't know what was going on. Um, She was misdiagnosed, and um, you know how that goes. So eventually... She was diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which is basically the scarring of the lungs, which makes it difficult to breathe. Uh, They gave us basically a three-year prognosis and told us to go and venture on a, a last family vacation. So we went on a very depressing cruise, came back and started, you know, the evaluation for lung transplant. And she was listed at the age of 40. And like many We were told that she had to relocate. So long story short, she relocated on her own. And my dad, my brother, and I stayed back because we had to make, my dad had to make money. And my brother and I were in middle and high school. And um, the waiting process began. That's a lot for any any 15-year-old to go through. And the fact that both you and Tiffany are going through this at the age of 15, like we we said earlier, just such a unique story. And to see your mom go through chronic illness, I can't imagine the difficulties that that must have been for you and your family. So can you tell me a little bit more about that particular piece of the journey, the emotional impact that that journey had directly on you and on your family? Oof. That's hard to put into words. We didn't say this would be an easy Um, discussion. (laughs) Yeah. 
Um, it, it impacted all of us um, in the family in, in so many different ways. I don't know. Obviously, my mom experienced the most changes from being healthy to sick and from working to being on disability and moving, not knowing really who she was anymore. And my dad lost his everyday partner. And so the financial burden was on him. Um, the parental responsibilities fell on his shoulders and he worked a lot. I don't remember him being home a lot. Um, and when he was, he wasn't really present. So the relationship between him and my brother and I kind of distanced. Everything felt really tense. He converted religions, so we were very confused. And my brother and I just felt really alone. So all the emotions that come with fear and isolation. We missed our mom and we missed who she used to be because she was different in, in all the ways. And I had a lot of weight on my shoulders too to kind of parent my brother. He was young. He was a type 1 diabetic. He had mental health struggles. He wasn't taking proper care of himself. And it was just a really emotional stressful time. And now, Tiffany, you had some family dynamics that occurred as well. You mentioned that your mom was like the glue that kept your family together. Will you explore what life after loss looked like for your family? Yeah, it was uh, similar. It was kind of figuring out uh, what this life was now. And I realized how much my mom um, took on the parental role for us because now that it was left with my father and I, it he didn't know how to raise a 15-year-old girl and I didn't really know how to really talk to him because he was not around a lot. He worked very long hours and, and you know, he just left the parental duties really to my mom. So now that fell on his shoulders. And so there was a lot of butting heads. There was a lot of uh, angst. 15-year-old girl angst, but then 15-year-old girl that just lost her mom angst. Um, and it was just him and I in the house. Now, my sister had just gotten married. She got married in February of 99. So almost her one-year anniversary and trying to be the newlywed and starting out in her career. But she was over at the house a lot to try to help raise me. Really, she took on a big part of that and made sure she was leaving work right on time so that she could get there to kind of make sure that I was doing homework or that I was fed because um, I didn't know how to cook. My dad didn't know how to cook. So it was, oh, we need to buy groceries now. Oh, we need to clean the house. Um, you know, things that you don't think of, but she did all of that. And so, oh yeah, someone's got to fill in. And so um, we were kind of figuring out what that all looked like. And I give my sister a lot of credit because I'm sure she missed out on job opportunities, on advancements, on things that she wanted to be doing because she felt this obligation and she was grieving herself. And, and so there's this, I'm grieving, but I know I need to take care of my little sister. I like to joke that she's, a, she's a, such a great mom now because of that. But, you know, I have to wonder, is there some resentment? She says no, but, you know, I, I feel that on my shoulders. My brother changed his college classes around so that he could come home on the weekends and um, a day before the weekend, in fact, so that he could be there and help kind of buffer the two of us. He, he ended up, once he graduated college, contributing to the household finances and just tried to do what he could to help in his way. He's a wonderful father now. And again, I want to be credit for that, but um, he's, he's one of my best friends. My sister's one of my best friends too. We're very close now, especially because as time went on, things just got too hard for my dad and he, he uh, 
I don't think could handle it. And so we haven't had a relationship with him collectively in, in many years because of, of his choice. And so we had to grieve him at a certain point too. And it's, it's hard when you're grieving someone that's alive. And so my mom left, she didn't have a choice. My dad left with a choice. And then here I am. 15 years old and suffering from something that I wouldn't recognize what it was until many years later, but complicated grief. I would be in my room. I didn't want to hang out with any friends. Um, I kind of thought if I wasn't crying, I wasn't honoring her. If I did something fun, then I wasn't honoring her. I, I lost that safety. And so one of the other impacts is the health, you know, brain aneurysms can be hereditary. And so they, um, they suggest that I go get a MRI to make sure I don't have one, but they couldn't do that until I was 21. So the first time that I walked back into that hospital that she died at was to get a brain aneurysm to see if I was going to die from the same thing. And so it was, uh, it was a lot, it was tough and it was isolating and I felt like nobody understood and our family just changed as a whole you know that family that we once were once knew it was it was gone how did you realize that complicated grief was what you were experiencing when did you come to that realization uh i didn't until grad school when i went to counseling as part of grad school and she was talking to me and and eventually got to the point where i was too much for her. going through the dsm and learning about things i was like oh check 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 i meet the criteria for this i mean when i look at it I legitimately um, meet criteria for it. And so it made sense though, um, because people don't realize complicated grief. And, you know, complicated grief is a persistent form of intense grief in which maladaptive thoughts and dysfunctional behaviors are present, along with continued yearning, longing, and sadness with thoughts of memories of the person who died. And it continues. It's like being in an ongoing heightened state of mourning. And that's what I was doing. So, Alex, y'all, I just have to be honest. This is tough as hell to try and to, to leave on a cliffhanger from one story and then to transition to the next. And I appreciate having the opportunity to be the guide in this process, but I, I do hope that it is not in any way coming across as callous as I go. Okay. Thank you, Tiffany, for your complicated bereavement talk. So Alex, <laughs> now let's get to <laughs> So, uh, wow, this is very, very challenging in, in a way I, I did not expect. So I just want to put that out there uh, to both of you. Is there, it's the whiplash for sure. And I think we appreciate the breaks in between for each other to just kind of like get our bearings before we move on to our next traumatic experience. <laughs> Alex, can you speak to what it was like waiting for an organ offer for your mom? How did you and your family cope with that weight? So the weight was hard. You know, we always tell our transplant patients and families that they should try and live life as normally as possible during the weight that, you know, life doesn't stop for transplant. But from my experience, that was pretty much impossible. It was really hard to wait. And I waited high school, college, and grad school. In high school, I tried really to cope by just focusing on school and putting most of my attention into fundraising because we had a really hefty fundraising goal back then. My mom missed my prom. She almost missed my high school graduation. She was actually 
discouraged from coming by the transplant team because she would have been, you know, too far if she got the call. But it was so important to her that she decided, I don't care. (laughs) I'm going to figure this out. And we had a plane on standby. I think it was through Angel Flight. It's helping us out just in case she got the call to get her, you know, safely back to the hospital. And I have this really vivid memory of graduation of her. Everybody was seated and she was being rolled into the ceremony room in a wheelchair with her oxygen tanks lugging behind her. And even though I'm grateful she was there, when I look back, it was a really difficult time to go through. And in college, I became really involved in organ donation awareness. We had a group called Get Carded. That was back in the day when we had physical organ donation, organ donor cards that we would keep in our wallets. So it helped me feel like I was doing something productive during the wait when I couldn't be with my mom. Um, And then in grad school, I really just couldn't believe we were still waiting. And I just focused then on getting my MSW so I could one day work in transplant and help other families. So it sounds like like you really experienced a lot of that hope of transplant, but also the difficulty about how much it impacted your day to day life. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Alex, can you speak about what it was like getting that life changing second chance at life? for you and your family. You got the call. What was that like? Yes, we got the call. It was the summer of 2011 and it was three in the morning. I was home from grad school on summer break and my whole family was in town, both sides, my mom's parents, my dad's parents. We had this big 4th of July barbecue. And then on the 5th of July, 3 a.m., we got the call saying that there were lungs available. And we went to Mayo. We drove. It was, I remember, pitch black. My mom was super nervous. I kept saying, you know, it's it's not a go till it's a go because I just didn't want to get my hopes up. And I was trying to be really realistic. We had waited so long. So I almost couldn't believe that it was really happening. But it did. And she was in the hospital for about 10 days. And I got to see her start to breathe easy on her own which was amazing. And I was her primary caregiver for the first month of her recovery before I had to go back to school, which was really rewarding, but also really stressful. Uh, It was a stressful experience. I felt like I had so much weight on my shoulders to make sure that I did everything right. You know, did I wash the fruits and vegetables enough? And did I um, cook the meat all the way through? I mean, there was just so many little things. I was just so worried. But we got to bond during that time and went back to school, graduated with my master's and moved close to my mom. And that's when I became a social worker and I got to meet the lovely Tiffany. Okay, so this is where in the story... We have been running for two different paths that have been parallel since age 15, and now we're starting to cross paths. So Tiffany, where were you in life in 2011 when you crossed paths with Alex? Well, it wouldn't be for about another year, but I was actually working at a hospital in Florida and moved across country to take this position. Felt like it was just the right thing to do. I became a general clinical social worker and was working towards licensure at that time. And then about a year later, this little girl got hired fresh out of her master's program. And I was like, a green social worker, huh? Okay, okay. And then in walks Alex. And now again, this year is about 2012. 
The little girl. I did. The I little called girl. her little one, Although now I call it lovingly. But mm-hmm. at that time, I called her the new girl. A- and it was more so because there was this bright eye, bushy tail. So I thought individual starting. And at that time, I was actually only working a 0.85 position. And she was hired on as PRN, but was able to work 40 hours a week. And then um, I just, to say it was not love at first sight would be accurate. We can't say the names that uh, Alex had affectionately for me, (laughs) Um, but there at least was the respect. You know, we had the respect aspect of, okay, she is a new social worker. I do need to teach her. Her being new to the institution that she had to learn. And so we kind of started that journey. And I remember I would watch her go to lunch with her mom and, and she'd be like, oh, I'm going to lunch with my mom. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. Uh, because, you know, there was that, I wish, yeah, jealousy. jealousy. Okay, fine. I'll say it. Um, because I didn't have a mom to go to lunch with. <laughs> and so, and I didn't have, and you didn't have because point five meant I worked 30 hours a week. And so, you know, it, it was, it was challenging, I'd say, because we didn't understand each other. And it wasn't until we were working a case together uh, that was a particularly challenging case, I'd say. And for some reason, it prompted us to open up and start talking about our experiences, our lives, and realizing that we had a lot of similarities. And, you know, at that point, I disclosed about the loss of my mother, and she disclosed about her mother's transplant. And I, we really kind of started to bond over that and recognizing that my experience was her worst nightmare, you know, because she came so close to, to losing her mom, but then, you know, she got this second chance. And I I think I had even told her about my mom had been an organ donor. And so from that point, we, we, that miscommunication was overcome and it was the beginning of this unbreakable, unexpected, just bond and and friendship that developed. got to go over to her house. I got to meet her mom. <laughs> so I want to take a pause here. Now that the two of you have crossed paths, each brings something very unique to this relationship that you have formed. One being the family member of a donor and one being the family member of a recipient. And so I want to get a little more about that experience and what that, that brought for you. So Tiffany, how do you feel about those recipients who received your mother's donation? I am grateful that we had that opportunity. I think I've said it, I've said it on here before. I've said it numerous times. I like to refer to transplant as tragically beautiful or beautifully tragic, depending on on how you look at it. And that comes from going through it. Um, Mm -hmm. I am a donor family and I don't share that with a lot of people. I don't use self-disclosure with my patients, things like that, but I I am, if anything else, your face for donor family at the moment, that life doesn't stop after donation. Mm -hmm. You have to now figure out how to live life without. And so we didn't get a letter from from our recipients. We we did receive from the iBank and the um, gift of hope. I think I said gift of life earlier, gift of hope. Now being a transplant social worker, I have to remember all the different types of organ <laughs> procurement organizations out there. Mm-hmm. But we we get letters 
from the procurement organizations that say what was viable and it was her her right kidney her left kidney and one of her heart valves unfortunately the other organs were not viable we don't know why we elected my father elected not to have an autopsy so we don't know the rationale for it but they were able to use one of her valves from her heart which is you know pretty cool especially having gone into to heart and then we were able to donate her eyes and so I know that I know where the kidneys went and I know that they started working right away and I know where the corneas went and that individuals were able to see. And so I look at it that there's people out there that were able to come off dialysis. And as Alex talked about her graduation, there's people out there that were able to see their their child's graduation through my mom's eyes because my mom couldn't be at my graduation. There's people out there that were able to go to their their child's college graduation and not have to find a dialysis chair out there because they had my mom's kidneys. And so people got to experience life events that they wouldn't have been able to because of my mom. And I look at that as amazing. We prepare our patients when we work in transplant social work for the the what's going to come, that call, that what it happens. And, and the day that they get their call, it's exciting for us. We are excited. I share in that excitement every time one of my patients got a call. It's music to my ears. But we have to remember that for some families, that's the day the music died. Mm-hmm. And knowing that it's tragically beautiful. And so I'm glad that something good came out of this horrific event that that I had to go through. And I know that there's families out there that go through this and there's families that go through worse and things of that nature, but it's putting a face when these people want to know who their donors are or want to know so much about how come they didn't write back. I couldn't write back. I was 15 years old. Mm-hmm. My family was trying to figure out how to how to clean the house, how to how to take my 23-year-old sister, how to take care of a 15-year-old daughter, essentially. My my 20-year-old brother how to take care of his 15-year-old sister in a different capacity. We we couldn't write back. And so I'm so grateful for those those letters from the Oregon Procurement Organization. And at that time, I had no idea that we could have gotten letters from the families. We didn't. And that kind of sucks now. I wonder. I'm very curious. I actually tried to reach out. I, re- I reached out to the Oregon Procurement Organizations to see if I can find out anything. But because my father was the one that signed off on it, he would have had be the one to either sign a form giving permission to me or reach out to them. And so I had to make that decision. Did I want to open up that door after having not talked to him? And so I elected not to and just take solace. And people got to experience moments of of joy in life that they wouldn't have if it wasn't for this. And so Alex, can you share your thoughts and feelings around donor letters or writing letters to the recipients? Yeah. So we were told when my mom got the offer they at that time gave more information than they do now, uh, which I think it felt good in the moment to find out. But I think it kind of did more harm than good because they told us that my mom's donor was a 19-year-old girl from Miami, close to where we were from. And my brother at that exact time was also 19. So that was really hard for my mom to wrap her head around, that she was receiving lungs from some very young, in her eyes, child who could have been her son. Uh, So there's a lot of guilt 
with that. Uh, there's a lot of guilt even before finding that out with our patients talk about this all the time. You know, hope you, you're hoping for transplant, but you know someone has to die. And you don't want to wish death on anyone, but you want the transplant. So it's just you're conflicted. I was making one towards Alex <laughs> that my mom died that day, whether or not she was an organ donor. She wasn't. She wasn't signed up for it. She died. Mm -hmm. And then someone asked us if we would donate. And we said yes. And I know I know that's hard. And I'm not undermining that by any means because we have these conversations all the time. And, and I'm incredibly thankful that Alex, you're sharing from an exact perspective of that family going through it. But mm -hmm. my mom didn't have to die to give those people their kidneys or their eyes. I mean, fudge. I wish she wouldn't have. But, you know, she died. And from that, we were able to donate, which helped. I don't know. And what I'm hearing is your mom wasn't signed up or had elected to be an organ donor at that time. The family chose to do so to honor your mom and to honor her legacy and her giving spirit. Is that fair to say, Tiffany? Absolutely. Okay. So Alex, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say my mom, because I think the, the fact that the donor was 19, she felt like she couldn't write that letter. She was like heartbroken for this family and she didn't know what words to put on paper. And we, we encouraged her, Tiffany and I both encouraged her uh, to write this letter. It took her three years to do it. I wrote one as well. I think we put a picture in there from my wedding and we we mailed it. Well, we gave it to procurement to mail and we never heard back. And that that's tough. But hearing Tiffany's perspective, you know, it, it, it gives me a, a new one because, you know, I'm, I was feeling disappointed, you know, because I, I, I guess I wanted something. I wanted maybe, I don't know if it was just contact or relationship or what it was. But I just wanted something. And to think that that family lost their 19-year-old daughter, you know, can't imagine from their point of view how hard it would have been to receive letters from us and a picture from my wedding and how maybe they wished that that could have been them. So just a really, really difficult thing. I think for us who have experienced transplant and donation, like really up close and personally, we know that it's not mm. all butterflies and rainbows. I would say it's most not. Cut this out. I was, I was going to be very negative. You can be negative. Um, we're, told, we're told to expect bumps in the road with transplant. Um, it's, I don't know. It's hard to describe. My mom was amazing. And my family felt like, oh my gosh, we waited forever for this call. Like we finally got the call. And my mom always said the quote, she would quote, she would say, my donor needed more time. And who am I to wish that time away? And that says it all. Like it just describes the type of person who Robin is, who Robin was. And she, she just saw things differently. Alex, can you share your feelings on your mom's bonus time that you mentioned? Yeah, so I had just mentioned about how transplant can be such a, a bumpy ride. Um, and from transplant on, just so many changes happened within our family. Less than a year after transplant from my mom, my parents separated and divorced. My mom was 
completely heartbroken. And we all know that our mental health can, of course, impact our physical health. And I think that it did for her. I became her caregiver. And my husband and I moved in with her to support her in all the ways, physically, mentally, financially. And life after transplant is a wonderful gift. But it's also a scary gift and you just never know and you wonder when things might turn. What's one word that you would use to describe that bonus time? I don't know, Kristen. That is okay. I would say complicated, maybe. A walking contradiction. Yes. What is the word? (laughs) Yes. It's a contradiction. That's so good. That's it. That's what it is. All right. I like that. Figure it out. Figure it out. Figure out what life after transplant is described in one word as a contradiction and you figure out how that is defined for you. Okay. So let's go back to the story at hand though. Eventually, now y'all are both social workers. Y'all are both hospital social workers at that, but eventually y'all both transition to transplant social work. So now talk to us about that. So Alex went first into transplant, so I'll let her go first. Yeah, I started in the clinic, which we call the dungeon, with (laughs) Tiffany and another coworker of ours. I was there for about six months, and then I moved to oncology for a year. But I always wanted to be in transplant, so I was just waiting for the opportunity, no offense to oncology, but to jump ship. And a kidney transplant position became available, and I moved over there, and I was in kidney for about five years. Tiffany? If I was going into transplant, it was going to be for lung or heart only. And an opportunity for lung came available. And I said, okay, it's time. And I got the unique experience of, of getting to meet Robin, who was a lung recipient and, and experiencing what life was like for her. So I had seen life as a recipient and I actually was encouraged by Alex because I talked to her uh, prior to putting in my application and her and her mom actually said, go for it. You would be really good at this. So I did. And then I moved over to lung social work. And then you became my mom's social worker. And then I became Robin's social worker. And initially it was becoming her social worker of post visits. And she would come into the office and I would tell her, anything that you say in here is confidential. This is patient social worker. Now I know you're probably going to go home and tell Alex everything, but... I'm not. And so whatever you want to talk about, whatever you feel comfortable talking about. And we did. We actually had some good talks. And she did present some things that she needed assistance with. And I I think I was able to help her with some things on that. And it it was unique because it was that dual relationship. But it was very much this is professional. And so we kept professional, professional. And I even talked to my manager about it too, and talked to Alex about it. And, you know, we were able to maintain that conflict of interest de-escalation. So then that leads, that brings us to what happened in 2015. So Alex, can you take us through what happened in 2015? Yes. So 2015, it was the springtime. My mom went into rejection and uh, we started the evaluation for a second transplant, but she was declining really rapidly. I remember she went in for her six minute walk and they admitted her straight to the hospital where she was for the next two months. And the wait for transplant for us began again, you know, for the second time. My biggest fear of the whole, during all the bonus years, you know, the what if, when is this going to happen? Um, 
I think that it was something that we didn't necessarily expect when I became the lung social worker that I would become this involved as the lung social worker for for Robin and and her family. And so it was something that we definitely had to navigate. And I had to have a long conversation with my manager about what does this look like? And the thing is, is because Alex worked there, it was a conflict of interest for anyone. And so we really had to, to determine, can I do this? And my answer was yes, because I wanted her to have the lung social worker and I was the lung social worker. So I didn't want to put in a supplemental or someone else because I wanted her to have what any other patient would have. And our manager was my mom's lung social worker first time around. So it was complicated every which way. And we went from, you know, having pizza and beer with my mom hanging out to being in an eval, in an eval room. And, uh, it was strange to say the least. Yeah, so we had we had to figure out what this would look like because as as Alex just said, um, you know, we went from having pizza and beer to okay, now we have to have real conversations. And so I would I implemented the badge rule, which was if the badge was on, I'm Tiffany the social worker. If I took the badge off, I was Tiffany the friend. And so when we're Tiffany the friend, we don't talk about evaluation, we don't talk about anything going on with work stuff. When the badge is on, we don't talk about anything going on with personal stuff. How was that for you being a social worker and a friend. How's it for me or how is it for Alex? Let's start with Tiffany. I think we should start with Alex. Okay. Let's start with Alex. Well, I was just, I just had a memory pop up of Tiffany coming over to my desk with her badge on. And I just looked at her and I went, uh oh, <laughs> because I knew that she, she meant business with the badge and the way she was looking at me. So it was on one hand, I was really relieved that we had Tiffany and grateful that she was our social worker. Um, I knew we were in the best hands possible. On the other hand, it was complicated because I, I wanted to know all the things. I wanted to know when my mom was being discussed in selection and what was said. And I wanted to know what her LAS score was. And I mean, I wanted to know all the things that you're not privy to. Um, and I just can only imagine how tough it was on Tiffany to know all the information and have to really pick and choose what she can share and still be my friend, but also be the professional. So it, I would just say complicated. It was complex. It was hard. It was weird. And also it was helpful <laughs> at the same time. So it was just complex. Yeah. It, it was, um, we had to navigate a lot of things. I heard a lot of things and I still to this day haven't told her all the things that I've heard because this point doesn't matter. But at the same time too, it's, it's still patient confidentiality and transplant confidentiality. And I think that's, that's the hardest thing too, because I was her friend. And by that point we had reached a stage of friendship that was, we were really close friends. And so it was, I didn't want to make her upset, but I also was, had to maintain my professionalism and people that know me know my, my, my work, my professionalism is, is first. And so I just remember some of those conversations behind closed doors and having to sit there too. So it was the same thing in that token, when we were in selection conferences when we were in the the discussions and I couldn't have bias right I couldn't say well but 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 she's my friend it was fighting like I would for any other patient 
Now, luckily I fight for my patients. So I was, I was doing that, but it was hard conversations to hear and, and hard to not be able to tell her things. And, you know, again, going back to that badge role, there's a third component. So there was, there was Tiffany, the, the friend, Tiffany, the social worker. But when I would go home, I was Tiffany that was dying inside because it, it was reliving my nightmare. It was opening a wound that I thought had closed because as I was going through this, I was, I was remembering my mom. I was remembering how I didn't want this for her. I didn't want her to have to experience the things that I went through. And unfortunately, I knew that was coming. And it was one of the hardest things that probably have ever done. Now, I will say that I would do it again. Tiffany, I want to ask you about bias that you mentioned. Can you speak more on that? And can you speak on countertransference? Because I'm hearing a bit about that as well through your experience. Yeah. I mean, bias is something that we we have to be as social workers. We have to check our bias at the door. We have to know what our biases are. And so no matter if you really, really like the patient or the patient's so nice, um, all mm. those things that we hear sometimes, it's sticking to the facts. That's why we have regulatory boards, right? That's why we have our evaluations. And so this was no different. I had to make sure that I was crossing the T's and dotting the I's. I will tell you, doing an evaluation while another transplant social worker is sitting there watching you, really hard. And I was like, <laughs> oh, am I doing it right? Am I, I got to ask these, you know, ask these nosy questions as we talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, I got to ask these nosy questions to my friend. But it was, I have a job to do. That's why we have regulations. That's why we have regulatory boards. And so to be... A social worker, you have to be that non-biased. You have to check it at the door. So again, I would check that at the door before I'd walk into our selection, our meetings. What's interesting is because Robin was part of the transplant team for so long, the doctors all knew her. Mm -hmm. And the doctors were, were, because they knew her and because she was such a compliant patient, there were times where discussions were had that they went against the surgeons because they were trying to, to but, but it's Robin. And so, and, and when we had surgeons or other staff members that didn't know her as well. Um, so it was very interesting to see that dynamic of the team that, that didn't have that same relationship that I did and to see their biases come through in it too. And the, and the counter-transference, I mean, yeah, it was... I had to check myself every day. And the thing is, is that even our friends, I didn't want to to share all that I was going through because I wanted the support to go to her. And so it was just, I was reliving it. I was experiencing it. I was trying to protect her in a situation that I couldn't protect, but I, I was trying as hard as I could to. And what's funny is that or not funny, but what's interesting is that I didn't share any of this until the first time that we gave our presentation. Um, so the first time that we shared our story with the public uh, was in 2020. And as we were practicing for that. It was the first time we also, we shared our story our stories really to each other yeah. in detail in order to prepare for telling it as a, as a, I don't want to say a couple, but <laughs> as a pair. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was really painful for me to, to find out what Tiffany went through and how hard she was trying to shield me by putting herself in a very isolated, vulnerable spot. And I didn't see it then. I, I, I think I had blinders on of, oh my gosh, I'm in crisis. And here's my best friend who's helping me. She's so great. She's so strong. I mean, I had, she is, but I just, I had no idea 
that she was falling apart until we told each other what we were going to talk about. So it's been a really hard and painful, but also enlightening experience to, to really do this together. There really is power in sharing our stories with one another. Yeah. And to add to the unbiased thing, we as social workers, we say we go in unbiased. We're supposed to go in without judgment. But if you really think about it, in a way, it's our job to decipher who can handle this and who can't. And with that comes some kind of judgment. And when you are personally affected by transplant and donation, the stakes can feel higher and that makes things more difficult. But we as social workers, we we give people chances to prove us wrong, to work towards tangible goals and, and get them where they need to be if they're capable of that. So I think that's the best way to keep us in check is to remember that part, that people can change and judgments. Oh, that's beautifully said. Change. Thank you so much, Alex. It, it truly, it, that is the truth uh, about just encompassing the belief of social work. To be human is to have bias. It's how we address our bias and how we utilize our skill set to be objective. So what we haven't heard though, is the rest of the okay. story. What happened to Robin? She was evaluated for a second transplant. Was she listed? Did she get the offer? Yeah, so she was um, eventually listed. And it was different this time because I was put in a, a different position where I was her healthcare surrogate, where I wasn't the first time around. So things felt heavier. Uh, at that time, I was still working full time in kidney transplant. I was trying to save my FMLA and my PTO for post-transplant. Um, I remember I was seeing a post-kidney recipient for his four-month appointment when I got paged by the lung team to tell me that she was being intubated and I should hurry up. I remember um, quickly wrapping up that patient and acting. I remember hanging up the phone and just continuing like a robot. I think I was in shock but also I knew I had to keep it together. Yeah, so she was intubated. And I remember, I think it was like one or two nights later, maybe it was the first night we got our first organ offer. It was from an older woman. She was a smoker. She had a history of cancer. Obviously, it wasn't ideal, but it was something. And they asked me if I wanted to accept it. And my mom was sedated, recovering from the intubation. And obviously, I couldn't ask her what she wanted to do. And I didn't really know what to do. But I kept thinking, well, she just wants more time. So if she just wants more time, then that makes me think that she would want it. So I struggled, but I said yes. And the lungs didn't end up being viable, which I was kind of relieved because I didn't know if I made the right decision or not. And I thought, you know, we'll get more offers. Like this is night one. We're going to get more offers. And we did. We got wow. 11 offers, but none of them were viable. My mom was sedated for the last two weeks of her life. I remember her saying, I just want to rest. I just want like one good night of rest. And they sedated her. And I don't remember medically exactly what happened, but she never woke up after that. And I remember the final day I was, I knew they gave me like a time limit. They were like, by Sunday, if we don't get the call, she's unfortunately going to be delisted. And I will say that that time limit was pushed there was a different time limit initially. Yeah. And I I woke up that Sunday morning in my bed, no phone calls, no messages. And I just, I knew, I knew that 
that the wait was, it was over. And I got to the hospital and I was walking down the hall. And before I could even make it to the room, the lung team stopped me and they were like, you know, we have to delist her. Like, even if we got the call right now, we couldn't even safely transport her to the operating room room to do the surgery. And we talked about a DNR. And I said, do you, my cousin's on her way. Do I have time to wait for my cousin? And they were like, yeah, yeah, you, you have time. And I remember going to the room and my, my Nana was in there, my mom's mom. And I told her at the bedside, you know, what, what they said, you know, that we had reached our limit and that she was going to be delisted. And I really think my mom must have heard it. And they say like the last thing to go in a person is their hearing. Side note, sometimes we would like play music or something. And even in her full sedation, like I would see her feet move. So she could hear things. It is. It's a real thing. I remember, right, Tiffany? I remember walking in the room one time and she was, she was sculpting. So as you said earlier, she was an artist and With I remember hand. walking in one day and she was, she was sedated, but or she hadn't gotten sedated yet. She was sleeping and her hands were moving, not like grandiose, but they were moving in a sculpting manner. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So I, I remember feeling like she heard because her numbers just started dropping really fast. And I think she finally let go and let herself rest. Mm -hmm. She didn't have to fight anymore you know, to wait. And I will never forget what I witnessed that day. And as hard as it was, I'm so grateful that she yeah. went on her own terms, you know, and I didn't have to make that kind of end of life decision that I was yeah. prepared for. But it was tough. And I, I think back on it. And, you know, she she died. And so I worked my butt off, you know, mm -hmm. to save my time, you know, and I, I wish that I didn't, you know, I wish I was there more. I remember not even wanting to hug her because I didn't want to, God forbid, give her any germs and she'd get sick before mm -hmm. getting an offer. I regret that, you know, I mean, I kept some kind of distance because I was scared and I didn't want to jeopardize anything. And I know that if she got the offer and it worked out, it would have been worth it. But it is, it's hard to think back yeah. on that. And we don't always get to know why bad things happen to good people. And I am so sorry, so, so sorry for your loss and what you had to experience. I'll interject in that statement, though, too, is um, you're exactly right. We don't know why bad things happen to good people. I think back to my own story. You know, why did I have to go through the things that I went through? But I, I got to witness a little bit of my why. Because had I not gone through the things that I went through with my mom, I couldn't have been the person that I, I feel like I, I needed to be for Alex. And, and I wish that she didn't have to join this club that I was part of. Yeah. Um, I wish like heck and heck, I wish that I didn't have to go through what I did to, to be that person, to be that social worker. But it, it felt like it gave me a little bit of, of clarity. It was, it was cathartic as, as hard and excruciating as this was. Because again, that day I, I lost, I lost a patient, which is never easy. And we don't recognize, we do, we know as, as all of us in this, this room right now, our transplant social workers, we've all been there when we lose a patient, how hard that is. But then when we lose, we lose a friend and that's hard when your patient is your friend, um, the difficulty of that and, you know, recognizing that it's hard. I mean, it's hard, the disenfranchised grief, the 
grief in itself, the complex grief, all of it. It's hard, but we do what we do and we show up. Like Alex said, she con- she continued that evaluation. <laughs> she she finished she finished that and if that is not a dedicated social worker, I mean <laughs> again, I, I don't I don't become friends with people that aren't hard workers. <laughs> uh, Tiffany, you, you mean yeah, you like gravitate, I gravitate towards, towards like-minded people, a certain and, type, of... and certain people, and Alex is no different. And the fact that she was experiencing what she did, but she showed up for her patient, and then she showed up for her mom because I witnessed her when she was doing this, and she would be at the hospital until she could barely keep her eyes open, and then go home, and then come back the next morning to to go to work again. And some nights I was there with her. She is the epitome of a transplant social worker. Thank you, Tiffany. What do you think the biggest takeaway or what would you like the biggest takeaway to be about this story and the biggest takeaway for transplant and organ donation? I would say, I would say that transplant is a complex journey. And as a social worker, think about the ways you can help the family as a whole. And remember that transplant and donation, you know, it doesn't stop with surgery. It doesn't stop with the passing of the donor. It's an ongoing, lifelong balance between love and grief. Well said. And I'd say that the other aspect to consider is the donor family. It doesn't stop at donation as well. And that's why we ask the questions that we ask. And that's why we get so in-depth with our patients and making sure they have the best opportunity at success. Mm -hmm. it's not saying that oh they have the best survival rates or chances but they have the best opportunity to have success because there is a donor family on the other side of that and that's why we include being stewards of this gift is that that was the only good thing that came from loss and so if I can hit that message home and that's why I so much love talking about the donor letter and things like that is because Mm -hmm. I'm a I'm a donor family I'm here to represent that Alex is a transplant family Mm -hmm. and and there's family component there's the patient there's the donor but it trickles into the family right and how much it impacts has impacted our lives and the lives of everyone involved in positive and negative ways. Had I not gone through that I don't know that I'd be as passionate about the work that I do. Because when I got into social work, I wanted to be the social worker that I didn't have. And so maybe I turn over every stone and maybe I go into too much details, but it's because I don't want another family to experience what I had to go through. I don't want to see other families experience what Alex had to go through, but if they do, I want to make it just a little bit easier. And you do. So to conclude the story, what are things like now for each of you? So I'm a transplant social worker, and I am now living in Arizona, uh, as far away from Illinois as I can be, unfortunately, but I still, you know, try to go back home as often as I can. I am 23 years post the loss of my mother, and I can't say that it's gotten easier, but I've learned how to adapt uh, with it. It's still hard at times, but I, I put my all into the work that I do and I find solace in the people that I surround myself with. And Alex and I, though we are miles apart now, we maintain being able to staff cases together and maintain a friendship that has not just turned into good friendship, but she is my best friend. What about you, Alex? 
So the first time Tiffany and I told this story in 2020, it was the first time I ever told it out loud from beginning to end. And I realized how much transplant truly defined me as a human being and my entire life. I was thrown into transplant as a 15-year-old kid. And there I was as a 30-something-year-old woman. And after that, I questioned myself a lot. You know, would I be, what would I be doing if I didn't go through this experience? Like, did I make the right decisions? And I think ultimately I did because I truly feel like it made a difference and impact in the transplant community that gave me my mom back. But after really reflecting, it felt like it was time to try something new. And I'm coming up on my one-year anniversary as a neuro-oncology social work navigator with a nonprofit, um, still making a difference, but in a different way. And I mean, who knows, maybe one day I'll go back to transplant. You never know. But for now, it feels mm -hmm. damn good to take a break. And um, you know, my mom passed on September 20th, 2015. My brother struggled very deeply after that. And a year and three days later, on September 23rd, 2016, he passed away. He overdosed. And I don't know, transplant, it's the domino effect of transplant. You know, it's, it's indescribable. But so I have my husband and my two boys, and I make sure that my sons know about the grandmother and the uncle that they never had a chance to meet. And it just hasn't been an easy road, but I hope that our stories can help people understand the domino effect and from social workers who mm -hmm. actually lived it on both ends. And I think that's the beautiful thing of it is that we lived it. We walked the road, we walked the journey. And so when people question me, a lot about why I do things the way that I do or you know how much I work or how much I've made work my identity it's because I'm trying to leave a legacy I'm trying to make my mom proud I'm trying to 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 feel like someone is is having a difference made in their life and or that I'm doing something worthwhile because I don't hear that I don't get that I don't have that I don't know if this is what she would want. And so the only way that I know how to do it is to help others. I am just speechless. And I am so incredibly grateful for both of you to share your story. And I speak for our podcast and for the community at large that we are proud of you. We're proud of both of you for not only the work that you do, but for sharing your story and the bravery that it took to share it. And so with that, I think that we will conclude today's episode. And thank you so much to all of you who listened. Beats by Transplant Social Worker hosts Kristen and Tiffany and affiliated guests and programs expressly disclaim responsibility and shall have no liability for any damages, loss, injury, or liability whatsoever suffered as a result of your reliance on the information contained in this podcast or in any media. And none of the persons and entities noted above endorse specifically any test, treatment, or procedure mentioned in the show. Always consult your own treatment team or institution for guidance on your individual care and or practice and policies.